Let us pray. Good Heavenly Father, fill our hearts at this time with love for your Son, Jesus Christ. As we think about the eternal benefits of the spilling of his precious blood, all for us, his beloved children. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On this most, most solemn of occasions, it seemed appropriate to consider the shed blood of Jesus, just what that shed blood has done and is continuing to do for all humankind. For it is on this day that we observe the fact that our Lord did indeed shed blood and suffered death in complete humility by allowing his being hung on a cross. Recall, if you will, what I said a few weeks ago when we talked about scourging, where Jesus must have lost much precious blood as well. All of this still seems unfair to us. What had he done to deserve such a final punishment. But again, a paradox. As gruesome as this whole affair was, his execution was all foreordained and required by the divine plan that had been made by the Son and his Father. That act was the most powerful one in sacred history where all sin for all time was covered, relieved, relinquished. We can only praise God as we wonder at this imponderable, selfless act. Reflecting back, we pass through the season of Epiphany where we saw Jesus manifest his merciful acts of healing, and again, his paradoxical pronouncements allowed us to say, like Peter, that Jesus was indeed God's Son, the Christ. Then, after having had this certified, we entered the season of Lent, where as a response to Jesus being manifest, we reflected on just how inadequate our response is to that realization. Repeatedly, we behave badly. And we do things that do not show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, as Paul tells us in his letter to the Gentiles in Galatia. And let's be honest, we all fail all the time. But in response to God's love for us, we do try. When we fail, we pray for forgiveness, and we receive that forgiveness over and over again. God is indeed merciful and loving and gracious. And now, the blood. To paraphrase Robert Frost, something there is that does not love blood. 
I hope that you will not be put off by talking about blood. We're compelled to think about it at this time because we know it all really happened. Yes, the torturing and execution of our Lord was unmerciful. And yes, his blood was spilled. We need only conjure up images from Mel Gibson's movie. But I believe that we must look at the blood of Christ as a synecdoche. Now I'm sure that our dear bishop could do a much better job than I to explain this particular figure of speech. Recall that he was a teacher of English for some years. But let me try. Synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a part is used in place of the whole. How does that apply here? The actual physical blood of Jesus is gone and cannot be said to have any efficacious value. Instead, the blood is a synecdoche standing for Christ's sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. It is not the actual blood of Christ that saves, but his death and resurrection. Let us look at a couple of scriptural passages that use blood in this way to try to uncover why there is such power in Jesus' blood. Looking at 1 Peter, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And Peter goes on to say that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, again emphasizing that God did indeed have a profound plan for sacred history, starting with creation, way over there, response to the fall, the exodus event, and I could go on. Possibly the most explicit explanation of the power of Jesus' blood, and again, I mean of his crucifixion and resurrection, is in the book of Hebrews. You heard chapter 10 read tonight. In chapter 9, verse 7, the crucial contrast between the Old Testament atonement that was accomplished for the people of Israel once each year by the high priest and the never-ending atonement of the new covenant accomplished by Christ and his spilled blood. Remember, only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once each year, and never without blood. But this was animal blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Then in verse 12, we read that the perfect man, Jesus, made the perfect sacrifice using his own blood, And this makes all the difference. In verse 14, how much more then 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. In verse 21, looking back to the Old Testament, we see the prophetic act of Moses according to the Old Covenant, sprinkling with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies, noting that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then, focusing on the contrast in verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. As an aside, I recall last night Archdeacon in mentioning that we see blood uh, it meaning life. And in a sense, losing blood may mean loss of life. And for any covenant to work, there has to be death. It's like a will. A will doesn't take effect until someone dies. And so, shed blood indeed has power, and the blood of Christ reflecting the voluntary giving of himself to be crucified for us is the ultimate in power. Let us review just what this powerful blood has done and is continuing to do for humankind. First off, the blood satisfies completely God's righteousness. I've said before, that our God, the God who created us and loves us, cannot tolerate sin. He must cry, if I may anthropomorphize, when he sees the sin of his creation. Sin engenders God's wrath. Romans is full of that, as you know. This is God's only way of responding, and it must be satisfied. And this satisfaction is accomplished by the blood. Secondly, the blood washes away sin. And the old hymn says it very well. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thirdly, the blood produces a savior. Jesus did many things during his time on earth. He taught. He healed the physically ill and the soul sick. And he gave us an awesome collection of often paradoxical tenets by which we should live our lives. But until he was nailed to the cross, shed his blood and died for us, he was not a savior. It took that and the subsequent resurrection and return to his Father in heaven to make him a savior. 
I have one final thought that I wish to share as we try to internalize this. In part two of Pope Benedict XVI's book, Jesus of Nazareth, the author points out that in Matthew's Passion account, the, quote, whole people, close quote, just prior to the scourging and crucifixion, yelled, his blood be on us and on our children. Again, in Hebrews 12, 24, this relates that Jesus' blood is different from the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood does not cry out for vengeance and punishment. It brings reconciliation. It is not poured out against anyone. It is poured out for many, for all. The crowd was calling for this blood of reconciliation to be on them, although they did not know it at the time. It takes the theology of the Last Supper and the crucifixion for these words to take on correct meaning. And so I pray for you that you may have a new appreciation for Jesus' shed blood. I pray that you may see blood in this context as a synecdoche, for the most incredible act in all of sacred history, the torture and ultimate death on a cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.